Welcome to The Dispatch from Newberry Consulting Services, where we believe in building community through better management, better teams, and better business. I'm your host, Trevor Newberry, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to The Dispatch. It's been a really long time since you've all heard from me, and I want to apologize for that. As you're no doubt already aware of, the world is a very different place than it was even one month ago. And as we've all struggled to try and adjust to the new shifting reality around us, it's just been hard to focus on creating content and publishing more podcasts. That being said, I love producing this podcast, and I'm resolved to keep it moving, especially during the crisis. Now, even though you haven't heard from me in a bit, I have been working on things. I've got several really good interviews to share over the next couple of months, and I have a few more scheduled. So rest assured, the dispatch is back, and we are bringing you guys some really great content. On today's episode, I'm featuring my interview with Lloyd Cooper of Push Product Design, an industrial design firm located in Birmingham, Alabama. Lloyd is one of the most interesting and thoughtful people I know, and his insights into work, creativity, and problem solving are deep and profound. During this interview, we dive deep into what design is, why it matters, and the value of specialists versus generalists, and even how broad experience and knowledge can help you be a better problem solver. Also, I'm really grateful to Lloyd for his time and his patience. We recorded this interview in January, so thank you, Lloyd. I always learn so much from Lloyd whenever we speak, and I know this interview is going to be just as insightful for you guys, so let's dive in. All right, Lloyd, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We are uh, super excited to have you here. I've been looking forward to talking to you. So um, as always with this podcast, I want, you know, our listeners may or may not know who you are in the Birmingham area. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself, your company, what it is that you do? Yeah, well, well, first, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. I'm also looking forward to it as well. Uh, So I, I am a industrial designer which is kind of like a cross between an architect and an engineer, if you're not familiar with industrial design, but it, it's product design. So it deals with how um, people use and interact products primarily. And I have uh, had a company called Push here in Birmingham for 20 years, and we work for clients. Uh, we do, we've been fortunate to work for a number of projects at the McGuane Center, which are some of my favorite projects all the way to designing uh, spinal implants to jet skis. So a wide range of stuff. That's really cool. So, yeah, this I, and this is one of the things that I have had uh, trouble with because I'm a layperson, right, is I hear phrases like industrial design, product design. Can What's the difference between the two just to kind of anchor that? At- yeah, so... It is, a, um, it is a wide open space. So industrial design is um, kind of classically the, the idea, the, the, the field, it's actually one of the worst named uh, fields I think um, you could imagine because mo- most people think it's, it's uh, designing industrial systems or pipe plants. And industrial design is a, um, is a practice evolved out of the arts and crafts and Bauhaus movement to, uh, with the idea of creating um, well-designed products that could be mass-produced and affordable. And uh, so that's where the field came from. There, to, your, to kind of to your question, there is a whole lot of interest now uh, in all areas of, uh, of uh, business in this idea of design thinking. So applying design methodology uh, 
from product design principles and engineering principles to solve all kinds of problems. So it's really, it's really evolved into a very wide open field. So now industrial designers not only design products, but they design a user interface. Um, Apple is, you know, kind of a classically known company is embodying the best industrial design principles. Companies like Braun, uh, Audi, uh, all kinds of companies now um, are, are very centered on industrial design practices. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's that's good background. Um, so, what led you to this world? So, uh, like like most things, uh, kind of by chance. So, I did not even know industrial design existed when I was in college, and uh, was fortunate enough to go to Auburn and started off in mechanical engineering and. I got into that space because of my dad, who was a naval architect and had an engineering firm here in Birmingham. And uh, so that's that's what I thought that I wanted to do, but found out about the industrial design program at Auburn, which was actually started by two Germans that came from Germany um, from the, at the end of the Bauhaus movement in the, the late 30s and started a program at Auburn. Okay. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. So they brought them to Auburn. That's a really, that's a really kind of a random transition. Yeah. I I have always wondered that and I do not know the story, but, uh, these, these two, uh, very well known, uh, designers in their day, uh, Eva file and Walter share, um, started the program. And, uh, uh, Dr. Scheer was the, uh, he was kind of the classic, uh, gray haired, um, kind of mad scientist looking kind of guy. He was the first, uh, adult that I had ever seen that, uh, wore Birkenstocks all year long okay. and a white lab coat, but he was a classic guy and, uh, but really fortunate enough to, uh, to, to have them as professors. So, um, I know when, when you and I met, uh, we talked a little bit about y- your father's influence and your mother's influence, just sort of on your, your thinking through design. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I was very fortunate to kind of grow up in a household where, um, my, both my parents were, were, were big inspirations to me uh, in so many ways. Um, but my mom, uh, she grew up in Birmingham, but was fascinated with design and interior design primarily. And so she went to Parsons in New York and, and studied design there. And so from her, I you know, I was always um, kind of exposed to the, the um, aesthetics and design sensibility of a, of a well-made piece of furniture. And it, and it didn't really matter if it was that she liked antiques, but I gained an appreciation for craft and just the thoughtfulness of building something that was enduring and had, um, had, had, uh, both functional and aesthetic qualities. And then for my dad, um, my dad was a naval architect, um, as I said, and so, so that's an individual that designed ships and, he was um, one of these uh, unusual cases where when he, by the time he was uh, um, six or seven years old, he knew that that's what he wanted to do somehow is to design ships. And in his day, um, he, he was kind of an interesting guy. He was apparently kind of a, a screw-up a little bit growing up. And so my grandparents made a deal with him that if he went to VMI, uh, which is the military school in Virginia... Uh, for two years that they would support him in going to the University of Michigan to study naval architecture. And so um, it's not a bad deal, but it turned out to be a real blessing to him because uh, in studying naval architecture, uh, the uh, World War II took place. Mm -hmm. 
and because he was always basically in a really advanced ROTC program, he went into uh, World War II, which was also a massive influence on his life um, as an as a enlisted uh, junior officer as opposed to an infantryman. And so that probably saved his life. But in studying naval architecture, uh, before I digress into that, um, a naval architecture in his day had to learn everything from, as you can imagine, how to design the structure of the ship, the 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 uh, the stiffness of the of the hull so that it could withstand a, a storm, yeah. all the way to the design of the engine room, to um, the proportional rake of the smokestacks, to the design of the silverware on the captain's table, wow. and so it was like a completely holistic design knowledge and aptitude that you had to have, and so my so he always said that. You know, if you're going to study any field um, of all the of all the possible fields of engineering and design, the pinnacle is naval architecture. <laughs> so, uh, so that was his his kind of um, influence on me. So, um, so I, I kind of was caught right in the center between right and left brain thinking. I really liked the analytical aspects from my dad and the technical challenges, but I also had this very strong appreciation for the aesthetic sensibility, which my father, um, you know, also had as well. So, so. Um, when I found out um, after I had been in, in the engineering program at Auburn for several years about the industrial design program, it just kind of clicked that that yeah. was like the ideal space. Okay, that's awesome. That's a that is the perfect kind of road to uh, a career. That's uh, I think what I the work that I've done has has mirrored that, but less formally. You know, I like we've discussed. I graduated right at the beginning of the recession, and it was just. I had to take whatever job was available and start to piece together lessons from a bunch of different places. And it's funny, I had a conversation with somebody, um, you know, uh, Lydia Dick over at uh, UAB. Yeah. She and I t- were talking about this uh, over coffee recently. And I, I said, you know, the thing that you have to do more than anything is pay attention as you're going through life. You You're going to experience different things in different jobs with different bosses and different contexts. And there are lessons along the way that will help you understand. I run really into this, or I have an aptitude for this, or this style of thinking is really interesting to me. And, um, <clears throat> our generation, as we move through this, like pretty rapidly changing work environment where I think the people that are excelling and doing the most exciting work are the people that are just paying attention and taking lessons from across a broad spectrum of experiences, whether it's travel or work or otherwise. So, yeah. Well, I think it's a very good way to put it. It's, and it's, uh, it's fascinating to learn how, you know, just the securitist routes that we all take. Um, my father always had the expression, you always have to keep your antennas out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you do. You really do. And it's, it's a practice too. It's not something that I'm supposed there are people out there that have a natural inclination to do that, but you do, you have to, ha- I've found it really helpful to have, um, regular periodic check-ins. Um, I've recently started a journaling habit, um, just to collect thoughts and collect my reflections on things that are happening, you know, day to day that don't that don't immediately stand out as a, as a pattern. Right. And having collecting that and having my, you know, quote unquote antennas out has been really valuable, right. To, to be able to refer back and go, well, that last couple of months was kind of tough. Why was it? And I may not have understood why it was tough at the time, but then I can look back on it and start to draw those inferences slowly, but surely takes a long time. 
Well, it, it, it's fascinating how, you know, you, you uh, even when you're facing, you know, difficult, the difficult times, how, you know, the experiences that you're able to gain somehow happen to be, um, you know, perhaps ideal experiences for you to learn from that then create the opportunity to do something that's, you know, really meaningful in your life. So, yeah, absolutely. So I want to get into... Uh, push design thinking product design the whole thing um but that was a great tee up for that conversation so let's kind of go go back to sort of softball here and just say you know with with the work that push is doing and firms like push how are you seeing that interact with the world how is that changing the way that we're interacting with products um that may not be a great way to word that question but the reason i ask that is because i think that industrial and product design are having dramatic impacts across the spectrum of society with the way that we interact with our products, but we're not aware of it, right? For example, this mug that I'm using right here, the Ember mug, it takes advantage of inductive charging, right? And it will keep this coffee at 130 degrees for at least an hour without getting a charge, right? Which is not burning the coffee like you get from a coffee maker sitting on a, a burner all day, but I also don't have to chug it in 30 minutes, right? Uh, that, that was, to me, as a, as a coffee person came up through the coffee world, that was a revelation. It was like, oh, wow, we can do that now. So maybe that was a bad example, but I'll let you take that. Yeah, I think it's a perfect example. So um, I'm intrigued by that coffee cup as I'm looking at it because I've never seen one and I'd like to get one. So, uh, so that is an example of a, uh, of taking an artifact like a cup, which is a commodity item and some clever individuals, uh, apply induction heating, uh, which is the same type of, uh, induction is the same type of, uh, charging mechanism that we now have for our smartphones when we lay our phones down on a, on a pad and, uh, but you can transfer heat as well. So you've got this, uh, thermal mass, this, uh, um, this metal alloy that the cups made out of, and you're able, it's able to hold heat and retain it for a long period of time. And so that adds value to, as you described by keeping your coffee warm. Well, that coffee cup, um, costs more than a regular, a regular cup. Um, but it has this clear, uh, you know, value to you as you talk about it um, and how much you've enjoyed it. So that's a kind of a classic example of, of taking, um, of, of thinking very carefully about the problem of using an object and how you can uh, improve the quality of the product and the experience using the product that is, um, that is beyond a normal experience. And so that's kind of the, that's a really good example of the pinnacle of applying good design practices to, uh, to improve a product that then um, ultimately improves the quality of our life, which is really what design is all about. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> you, you hit on something that I think uh, is salient in this conversation, because as you pointed out, this mug, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes so people, it's the thing about podcasts is you can't see what we're talking about, so I'll put a link there. Um, but this mug is a lot more expensive than the mug that I, you know, I stuck you with for your coffee today. Um, it's, I, I think about this often, uh, that while this mug is more expensive, as long as I take care of it, I will probably not have to replace it right for a long time. Uh, it'll add a lot of 
intangible value to my life, right? So just the experience of drinking coffee, but also uh, it's probably a sturdier, uh, longer lasting design, right? Um, and and the same thing with all the things I have on this table. Uh, Rhodia paper, I'm using a Pilot Metropolitan fountain pen. Um, these are things that that are just higher quality, but also more expensive. And I think that might be one of the places where uh, things break down for the general public as they see a price tag, right? And they get sticker shock. Um, how does product design navigate that? Like how does, uh, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, Am I asking that yeah, question correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, so, um, so one of the, so to the, to the point that you made earlier too, about how design seems to be more pervasive and, and talked about one of the, one of the key areas that the design is impacting, uh, you know, our consumption of goods is that there is a, people are more aware that to have, um, that, that although there is tremendous benefit to having products that are more affordable, um, you know, the contrast to that is that products that we buy that are inexpensive, that break easily, um, you know, those products cause a tremendous problem with, um, from a sustainability standpoint, you know, they go into landfills, you know, we consume plastic bottles, uh, you know, we're, we're very aware of the discussions about, you know, climate change, environmental sustainability, and um, and the waste that we have as, as, as consumers. And I think particularly here in this country, um, there is a, uh, we're, we, we, we waste a disproportionate amount of, of stuff uh, you know, based on our population. And, and, and so all... All individuals are becoming more aware of the consequences of consuming goods and how we use them and how we either keep them um, and treasure them or uh, or dispose of them, and so I think that's having a big influence in just just broader discussions. Yeah, how do you think? Uh, you mentioned actually some of the some of the <clears throat> notes that we've made in this uh, pre document here about. Uh, you know, affecting aspects of work and business, right? So like industry is one of those places. Consumers obviously are, are, are a direct vector for a lot of what you're talking about, but also uh, business and industry. So how, um, so I mean, maybe draw from your own experiences with push. Um, how are, how's the work you guys are doing impacting the world of work and industry? Yeah. So, um, so an example, uh, I guess it comes to mind uh, is we we recently created uh, helped to create for a client a new type of um, um, protective device for uh, doctors and surgeons that use uh, radiation to guide uh, their instrumentation um, during a procedure. Uh, so we, we've all, you know, had an experience going into the hospital or, or going into a doctor's office and needing to get an x-ray. And there's a big trend in medicine to improve quality and outcomes uh, more efficiently called um, basically around minimally invasive procedures. So as opposed to cutting you open, you can go in through an artery and you know, do things like um, insert a stent all the way into the heart. And in order for doctors to do things like that, they use radiation and fluoroscopy to guide, to be able to see into the body as they guide these instrument, instruments. And so we, we developed a product, I think kind of to the, to the kind of direction of some of these earlier questions, that is a, 
Um, it is an, it is a uh, device that replaces uh, the 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 doctors having to wear lead aprons. Okay. So uh, that's that's the way that that is tra- that is that is the way that that um, that individuals have traditionally protected themselves from radiation exposure. Mm-hmm is creating this lead barrier. And the challenge with that is, is that for individuals that do this on a daily basis, they develop um, um, back injury because they're carrying all this lead and they're standing all the time. And so we created a shielding system that um, that um, that protects the, um, the operators in the room and they no longer have to wear lead. And so this is a... Uh, this is a more expensive design innovation with a physical piece of equipment that traditionally did not exist before, but it has um, empowered the and enabled the individuals that do these procedures to have uh, much more freedom of movement and less physical stress, and therefore they can do these procedures more effectively, and they can do more of them because they're not being subjected to the danger of radiation. And so... uh, that kind of comes to mind as an example. Sure, sure. That's really interesting. My wife is <clears throat> um, a, a cardiac nurse um, and has been for years, and so some of these things that you're referencing make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, as you're as you're describing that, so she she'll love this part of the conversation. So, um, all right, so let's get into some of the the meat here and talk. Uh, I think when when you and I had coffee um, to discuss doing this podcast uh, several months ago, one of the really uh, exciting things about the conversation was how we tend to think similarly about problem solving and about uh, learning, um, about the conversation around generalization and specialization. So just at a high level, um, I wanted to get you to speak a little bit about the problem solving process that you use at push and, and probably in your daily life. I imagine that bleeds into to every part of your life. But yeah, if you just at a high level, kind of give us an overview here. Yeah. So I think it's this whole idea of uh, specialization versus being a generalist is a, is a fascinating topic um, that uh, we all kind of try to get our minds around. So a lot of people ask um, me, well, how is it that you can do so many different types of projects? And my kind of uh, kind of default answer is, is that, you know, push, we kind of know just enough to get in trouble. Where we know a whole lot about a lot of things. And then, well, we know, we know some about a lot of things. But we know a whole lot of people who are specialists and that we can go to as domain experts to get guidance. And so... All of our projects um, really start um, in a learning phase where we're developing criteria. And this is one of the things that we talked about that's similar with our clients is that you, know, you go in and it's, it's, it's a very kind of tenuous balance between um, having the, and there's a fascinating book that I had been reading called uh, Strong and Weak by uh, Andy Crouch and the it, it is about this balance between having the authority as, as a hired consultant to help a client solve a problem and then having the uh, the vulnerability, the openness, the learning to ask questions, you know, not to be afraid to ask what might be a dumb question, but just so that you can you can gain an understanding and be competent enough to begin to explore and apply 
a design process or a methodology to, to basically systematically take the problem and break it into parts so that you can understand it and then start to work through um, the elements of how you can solve those individual parts um, to be able to move towards a solution path. Mm-hmm. And it is, um, that, that's what really what I'm fascinated with. And that's, that's really what, what draw me to design is, is figuring out how to solve problems better. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, <clears throat> so you had a TED talk about this, um, or a TEDx talk about this. That was, uh, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Actually, I'm going to make a, a note here. Um, this is maybe a random question and off topic, but um, what, and, and this actually, maybe it's a little applicable in a meta way. Like, what is it like when you uh, describe that to people? Like when you're telling people about that um, process of problem solving, cause that had a lot, that was a lot of what your Ted talk was about and, you know, being on stage or being in front of a mic, how do people respond to that? Right? Like what is the experience that you have with that? Yeah, well, because I, I, uh, the reason I asked, the reason that's interesting to me, um, I've done a TED talk as well. Um, and the, what I do intuitively, having to go through the process of, of thinking about it and creating a talk about it and then describing it to people and then taking questions and, um, making that relevant to people, um, has a very sort of meta design process element to it as well what was what was it like doing that and and maybe what is it like now doing that yeah well it's uh you're giving a talk like that uh it's kind of a surreal experience um to try to consolidate you know uh, um you know this broad complex thing you've been working on all your life into uh, um you know into a few minutes that you can share with others but i really enjoyed the process and kind of the, the, the discipline and the challenge to, tr- to try to do that because it really made me, um, you know, reflect on what, you know, really I could share that would be meaningful to others. And, you know, I think that that's, that's really the, the, um, the wonderful thing about, you know, TED Talks and talks like that is that it's not, it's not really about, you know, you going up and have an opportunity to speak. It's, it's about an opportunity to share, you know, meaningful knowledge to other people. The uh, what what I did in in that talk is I uh, I started with uh, you know the best story that I had ever heard um, that my father shared with me mm-hmm. about um, about solving a difficult challenge, yeah. and then explained how that kind of impacted my career and made me think as a young person about well if if they did that. Um, you know, he, my, my father clearly had an influence on me, and I, I wanted to be like my dad. Uh, but, but beyond that, how could I apply what he learned in his experience um, so that I could I could learn how to do that um, and learn as much as I, ca- I could about you know the the aspect of solving problems. Yeah. So that was kind of a difficult question, but uh, the reason that I led with that is. Um, <clears throat> I think about this all the time. My background is in political philosophy. So a lot of, uh, that's what I studied. So a lot of like big, big high lofty thoughts, but the challenge was always, how do you take that and distill it into, uh, your everyday life, your actions, how you're moving through life. And one of the things that I've always thought is that we need to teach people this more often, right? We need to teach people, not just political philosophy, but how to think, right? Um, and 
you had to, in a kind of a micro way, do that with your TED Talk. Um, and I'm interested in your thoughts around design, engineering, and problem solving, and whether or not you think that there is a deficit of education around those things today, and if it's important to include an education today, if that's something that... Uh, you see as something that needs to be included more in whether it's curriculum or extracurricular activities. Um, just how, uh, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. Like whether or not people have an adequate understanding of these concepts in a way that will help them with their daily lives, um, and interact with, you know, others, their jobs and their products better. Yeah. <clears throat> so it, I think that, uh, I mean, it's, it's very, it makes me kind of reconsider as you ask the question in that way, because I think it's a very, uh, it's a very thoughtful question. Uh, the, uh, we're all aware if we have, you know, children, uh, like, like I do, um, in, uh, K through 12, there's a, there's a big emphasis now on, uh, STEM, science, technology, education, um, in engineering, mathematics, uh, STEM and STEAM um, initiatives and curriculums, e even in K through 12, and the importance of doing that, uh, so that we can um, e expose our children to that at an early age, and so that they can, you know, consider that as potentially a, a, d a design vacation direction. But I think more importantly, um, it's it's introducing. Uh, young people to the opportunity to to learn about um, problem solving mm -hmm. and in design and engineering and in design and engineering fields one of the one of the fascinating things about learning and designing and, and creating things is the aspect of building and when you are trying to solve a problem uh, it's one of the things that's the most important is to get affirmation whether or not you're making progress in solving that problem or not. Mm -hmm. And when you're building an object, like a bridge, even like a model bridge, or, you know, like, like, like uh, you know, so popular in schools now, these, these robotics programs, mm -hmm. where you're, you're given an assignment to build an object to do a certain function, where you can immediately determine if you're making progress in that solution or not by how well that, that system functions. And so it's like this tangible... Um, element of feedback and I think that uh, that to me is uh, the, the aspect of being able to apply uh, a, a process of of learning about learning about a challenge uh, figuring out how to um, how to solve it and then take step taking steps towards solving the problem and getting getting uh, feedback is to if you're effective uh, in figuring out that solution is really um, it's, it's kind of the crux of what we're talking about here and that that is really the the bones I think that resonate with um, with 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 a, with the importance of understanding systematic methodology to solving anything whether it's design or political science yeah. and I think that that's kind of the the chord that's resonating now that we're talking about yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so, and we're we're gonna we're gonna t wrap all that up with a bow um, here in just a little bit. But one other topic that I kind of just switch gears a little bit um, that I wanted to hit, 
And we mentioned it earlier is the uh, conversation around generalization and specialization, right? And I think that's particularly resonant with the work that you do and, and frankly, the work that I do as well. I get called in to work with businesses and they have a marketing problem or they have a uh, they have a technical problem or they have a, a process problem and I have to be able to navigate all of those elements with some level of competence or, as you said, be able to go and find someone who is a specialist that I can bring into it. But um, when I sent that to you in in the document before the show, um, you you linked a, an article from I think it's Forbes, yeah, Forbes. That um, just I read it and I thought spot on. This is, that's exactly uh, I was in complete, almost complete agreement with that. Um, but I was hoping maybe you could talk to us a little bit about um, your thoughts around that and why you think that that conversation is really fascinating. <clears throat> well, I. I uh, I really enjoyed that that particular Forbes article that uh, I know you can provide a, a link to here, mm-hmm. um, but it talked about the it asked this question to the Forbes article asked this question to a number of individuals that people um, are talking about today like Elon Musk and Musk is uh, we'll just use him as an example M- Musk was. Uh, his core education was in in physics, and in 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 basically understanding root cause and what what this this concept of first principles. If I'm going to understand something, if I'm going to if I'm going to face a problem, what is what are the root elements? What are the what are the uh, the underlying principles that this problem is about that that need to be addressed in order to create a meaningful solution? And so. It's, it's kind of drilling into the center of what the problem is about. And Musk, if you've read about him, uh, has been able to take that, that core um, methodology and apply it to uh, everything from initially the creation of a, a mapping software, which he was able to sell, and then take the proceeds and um, build another company that, that became PayPal. And then he used the proceeds from that to create, uh, to invest uh, in, in take control of Tesla and then to build out SpaceX. And now he's doing all kinds of fascinating additional things in artificial intelligence, in building uh, you know, high-speed rail in a new way called Hyperloop, uh, just a, a remarkable host of things. But what he's been able to do is, is apply this this is to develop his own methodology mm-hmm. based on first principles as a generalist to go into a remarkably diverse range of industries and businesses and in each of those businesses create not just a better solution but um, you know this common term of disruptive innovation where he's revolutionizing these spaces. Yeah. And so he's a fascinating person, I think, to, to learn about. And so if you're interested in in you know design practices, I, I really encourage you to uh, you know to find people like 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 Elon Musk mm-hmm. and others that have done things and, f- and and learn about how they did it. Yeah, yeah, I I could not agree with that more. And, and it reminds me of the the um, sort of phrase that you guys use at Push is bending constraints. Um, <clears throat> I think that that conversation around generalists and specialists is really. Uh, it hits home for me because of the fact that I did not get a highly specialized education. All right. Like, well, I did in political philosophy, but 
a fat lot of good that's doing us at this point. <laughs> so um, I uh, I ended up in in the world having to navigate and pull lessons and pull uh, pull expertise from different areas, right? <clears throat> but also there's a book called Range by David Epstein. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it's a great book. And I think the point of the article and the point of the book is to say that the conversation around this is not... Um, it's not as simple as you need to be a generalist or you need to be a specialist. Uh, it's kind of like you described earlier. You need to be enough of a specialist to be competent, but also humble enough, a generalist enough to, to know when you need to go and find someone that you can bring into the conversation or the problem, um, but also to be able to see problems without the constraints that have been applied to them historically, right? So you can see problems and say, you know, well... Why couldn't a phone have a foldable screen, right? Like, it, if you'd asked somebody that five years ago, they most people would have said, that's bonkers, right? Well, why, why not? We've got the technology's almost there. Where have we seen things like that happen in the past? What kind of lessons can we draw from that? So to me, it's it's the conversation is is really more nuanced in that you have to kind of be both, right? You have to develop a specialization, but also a sort of a generalist ethos uh, and mentality about approaching problems in the world. <clears throat> I think that's a very good way to put it. Um, you, you know, another, uh, and it's the sole, the, sole, the sole idea too between specialization and, and, uh, and being a generalist is uh, it, it, it's somewhat counterintuitive because you, it's lo- it's logical that, on on the one hand, that individuals that are going to create breakthrough innovations um, have the 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 greatest depth of understanding of, you know, the fundamental challenge that they're solving. But if you look, you know, throughout history, um, you know, Steve Jobs is another example of a, of an innovator. Um, if you know about uh, Steve Jobs' life and and I- Isaacson, Walter Isaacson has a great um, biography. Uh, that's the very insightful. You know, Jobs was able to to um, to help to, along with IBM, um, bring the personal computer into existence. Well, Jobs was a um, you know had a liberal arts background. He was uh, you know he dropped out of college. He you know worked with a group of um, of uh, you know, hackers essentially in Silicon Valley back in the 70s and basically built Apple from nothing to be one of the most influential and I think it is the most valuable technology company in the world today at over a trillion dollars of value. Yeah. And, and, and so if you look at him as an example, it is almost, it is preposterous that this guy um, Happened to happen to be able to do this, as opposed to much more sophisticated corporations like IBM or um, uh, or uh, companies that we don't even uh, you know that are no longer in existence today. Um, early early uh, business computer companies like like uh, uh, DEC and other companies. So um, it's it, it it's fascinating. Uh, this this balance and you clearly have to know what, what I always uh, encourage to young people that ask me the you know similar questions about this space and what they should do and and their interest in design is that uh, is that 
and this is something that my father always, uh, you know, encouraged to me is that even though he had this, uh, you know, this great base of knowledge, he would always encourage me to to think about a problem and then try to apply my own insights and then see if they could work out either through, you know, um, building a simple prototype or you know talking to others to gain, you know, to get validation or not, because. These, I think that what the spaces that we're in now, you know, from you know the political challenges that face our country to design and sustainability, and all these incredible uh, uh, challenges that we face, they're not going to be solved. Um, the, the, the challenges are so, are so significant that they're they're clearly not going to be solved in conventional ways. They require new insights, and oftentimes it is the the younger individual who is not constrained by this this massive depth of understanding and only solving problems one way, you know, that asks the question that leads to the innovation and the breakthrough. And, and that's, that's the wonderful promise of, of anyone that's interested in this field is that, uh, you know, it is, uh, you know, our, our future is dependent on thinking about how to solve things in different ways. Yeah. Which is a great way to, <clears throat> sorry, I choked on some water earlier. Um, it's a, that's a great way to, sort of sum up and, and uh, bring that conversation home is uh, about the sort of what I see as a deficit of, of education around um, around problem solving and around critical thinking skills and around the intersection of creativity um, <clears throat> and domain specificity. Uh, I think it's, uh, I agree with you entirely that that's the thing that will, move industry forward, we'll move society forward, we'll move governance, all of the above is, is people being better and in a way less constrained, right? About how they think about problems, um, <clears throat> how they approach complicated situations and how they're able to draw from other experiences and domains outside of their own, you know, maybe specific lane of life that they live in. So, uh, I think that was a great way to put that. Um, <clears throat> So one of the, uh, I kind of want to shift now into some more, not, I don't, well, actually, let's go that way. I'm going to redo that one real quick. Sirens are another one of the things that are not fun ambient background noise. <laughs> Do you need anything? Are you good? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is going great. Um, and I know I'm jumping around. I do that. I, I tend to... I tend to do that on purpose because it, it jogs certain thoughts, right? Um, I say I tend to do that on purpose. I think I did it on accident first and then said, that works. So I kept doing it. Um, <clears throat> all right. So I think now would be a, a pretty good time to shift into, you know, one of the things that I, I want with this podcast uh, is to be able to provide um, good conversations, good insights, but also some practical stuff, right? So, um, and the reason that I started doing that is because I didn't have that available to me, right? It was very, it was kind of hard to find when I started running my own business. I had to just make things up, right? Which is a good exercise in and of itself, but also I was always looking for someone to give me, uh, I was always hungry for the next like tip or trick or whatever. And I found that that was sorely lacking. So now that we've set sort of a precedence of, you are, I think, you know, maybe you wouldn't say this, but I would call you a, a domain expert in this concept of problem solving and applying design thinking. Um, how, where, where do we start? 
if someone's listening to this and they're anything from a, you know, uh, cottage industry arts and crafts person to a, uh, to a, a consultant, a business consultant like myself, uh, and they're interested in learning more about problem solving, they're interested in learning more about design thinking, where do they start? <clears throat> I, I always encourage people to start by, um, by, learning more about individuals that are in that space that are, are doing things that are creative uh, and uh, learn as much as they can about how those individuals did what they did and uh, figure out how you can apply, you know, those, those insights. So uh, there, are also, there are also some, some books around um, you know, broad problem-solving methodologies. There's a fascinating book that I, I, I recommend frequently called Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Johnson that talks about the... It, it's a wonderful... Um, basically, it's a historical m- narrative around technology and innovation. And it talks about, for example, uh, things like um, the the development of... of glass from the early discoveries of glass in the desert, you know, that was created by, by lightning, um, um, heating up sand to the formation of lenses with, you know, in, in, um, in, uh, these fascinating stories about, um, you know, monks crafting lenses into, uh, into uh, optics so that they could see to write these manuscripts, which led to, you know, telescopes and Galileo and just the transition and the pathway of the, of, of innovations. But Johnson also talks about this really fascinating idea, I think to the point of our conversation called the adjacent possible, which is if you face a challenge, it's often very intimidating to be able to, to, to move towards a solution. But if you can take the pathway and break it to small parts and then take one step if you can take that step, it's like going into the first door in a house. If you go into the living room, you have the option to go into a range of additional rooms that you didn't even know were perhaps there until you took that first step. And so it's, and so it's, it's that essential concept. And by moving in, in exploring one possibility, that creates a range of possibilities that you can then pursue. And I think it goes back to the earlier um, discussions we were having about career paths is that it's, it's often, you know, I think that the, the, the misconception, I think, in design and solving problems is often that, you know, if you're smart enough, you can figure out how to do it and, you can fi- and it's a linear path. Well, it's not a linear path. It's often a very circuitous path. But it's, it's, this, it's this combination, it's this eventuality of taking the first step and then seeing where that leads to and then having the benefit of that new perspective that you can take a much more thoughtful next step. And um, anyway, that pattern I think you'll see in, um, in, in, in is, is, is best revealed by, by studying the lives of individuals that have excelled in these areas that you might be interested in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are so, uh, <clears throat> some of your, do you have any like daily practices or weekly or monthly that you go through that helps you, uh, whether it's with a project or personally that kind of relates to that? Yeah. So uh, one of the tools that, uh, that we use at work is a software product called Basecamp, but it but it's basically a depository. It's like a it's like a um, a private secure uh, web based uh, uh, 
Dropbox in a way, but it's as opposed kind of kind of that type of a thing. Um, but in addition to just being able to place files there, you can you can place to do lists and have discussion threads, and then all your team members and your client can uh, can view the discussion thread and um, and have all that discussion in one place. That's very easy to to um, to pull back up into reference, and one of the great powers of that tool is that um, when you're when you're when you're beginning to solve a problem it's it's intimidating it's challenging and your the first step the, the steps of the design process too I want to mention those uh, they're, they're generally the same in all of the projects that we do it's generally a four-stage process and the first step is criteria definition in research and then concept development where you take that research and you begin to deform initial ideas that appear to be promising mm-hmm. And then after concept ref- concept development, you have concept refinement, where you take the most promising ideas and you refine them further, just like it sounds. And then with those refined ideas, in our in our case, you move into uh, design for production, or taking those ideas and actually taking them into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So that four step process, and it's often um, it's often a um, a circular path because as you develop a promising concept, again to the point of the adjacent possible, that may give you some insight to explore a second concept that you didn't anticipate yeah. and you can prototype it and then determine if that actually has merit and then and then and then build on top of those insights as you begin to refine the, the product into something that's actually useful. But uh, what Basecamp does is it is as a depository, as you take all of these elements of insights that you're gaining that initially may appear to be random and unorganized, if you can put them in one place and basically um, organize that that set of documents um, as you as you as you build this base of knowledge. It is an extremely powerful tool to to then uh, figure out of all this information that you've now collected what's most meaningful and relevant. Mm-hmm. And and also something that I want to stress that I think is also a, a lot of our clients don't practice this process, and we actually educate them on Basecamp, and then they adopt it in, in their own systems. But if you can get all the team members in a project seeing all the same information, it is often remarkable where, you know, to this point of expertise, where you may have a team member in marketing and will ask the design engineers, well, what if you did it this way? And so the insights that you can gain, um, irrespective of discipline and domain, that contribute to the solution um, is, uh, is often super exciting yeah. and interesting to see how that works out. I, <clears throat> I'm so glad that you said that because my team has been working in Monday.com uh, for the past few months, and I have been looking at Basecamp, and I've been hemming and hawing about it, and like I don't know that switching switching tools is such a pain. But um, and there's a lot if you get into uh, productivity and GTD conversations online, or you know listen to podcasts about it. There's Basecamp is polarizing. There are people that hate it and people that think like it's saved their lives. Right. Um, but what you just described, I think is really the value that it brings as opposed to other project management and information collection tools is that you do have that capability to have a whole team and sometimes even clients, right? Because you can invite your clients into projects through um, Basecamp in one place, looking at all the same information and just providing a lot of that, uh, a lot of opportunities for what you des- what you described as the adjacent possible, right? It it those touch points are just they're intangible. They're hard to 
they're hard to manufacture. You just have to kind of let it happen, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's it's a it's a um, yeah. You you let you have to create a platform for it to happen and evolve because you really, you know, at the end of the day, in, in my in my opinion, in my experience in doing this for for some time, um, you you can set it in motion and you can apply a methodology, but the smartest people, I think, step back and see it evolve. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's also very important to, and, and again, to this, to this broader discussion in, in terms of, uh, you know, authority and vulnerability, it's, it's so important, too, to stay humble throughout the entire process and not to try to lock down and say, this is the way we're going to go. You, you gotta make, you've got to lock down and you've got to be efficient and, and a prudent steward of your client's resources. Uh, but you also have to let the thing stay open enough to see that it could evolve into a direction that even you know, far exceeds your expectations. Yeah. And so it's a very, you know, it's this, it's this very um, interesting balance of, um, of, um, of, of, of focus and then letting it open and then and then refocusing, and uh, you know, I feel like I'm still a student of it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's always something that you can learn and improve. Yeah. One question that I just thought of <clears throat> while you're saying that, and we're we're running up on the hour mark, but I I wanted to make sure that I asked this uh, because I deal with this, and I think some of my listeners deal with this as well. Like what you just described is, I think, one of the, I think it's like the secret sauce for doing amazing work, right? It's it's that sense of openness and that balance between that sort of like digging down in and, and the, but also being open to these sort of adjacent possible opportunities. Um, <clears throat> that's hard to communicate to clients, right? Clients want specifics. They want to know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. And sure, there's some best practices that, you know, all service providers or designers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, can use to sort of, alleviate that but that is something you know with our own our own process at my company um it was really interesting listening to you to talk about the design process because we use that but it's like happenstance we just we made it up because it made sense where we we describe our process as um investigate instigate and innovate where we do a lot of research um we formulate the ideas as many ideas as we can and we sort of explore uh, those ideas and tangential ideas that come out before we move into that refinement process. Um, and that's the best job that we could do of giving a concrete description of a non-concrete process. How do you guys go about that at push? Well, we, we face this challenge with, with every new client, uh, you know, teaching them about the process and then, uh, and then walking through the steps to which it, it it involves really a lot, a lot of trust because you, as you said, there's no real guarantee uh, of solving a problem. The, 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 the nature of our work is we are in, our firm is not hired unless a client is facing a problem that they don't know how to solve, that they've often tried to solve before they hire us. So on the front end, it is a difficult challenge. And so the, so they're hiring us because of, you know, the expertise and the trust that we can take, the successes and the methodology that we've had in the past, and, and hopefully be able to apply it to their problem and create a meaningful solution. Uh, so that's the nature of the thing. Um, 
one of one of the uh, one of the things that I wanted to share too that I think is very important in this process is that is that one of the tools that you can use what really at the end of the day problem solving it is also about mitigating risk yeah. you, you you are you you are extending yourself out to learning about something that you um, that you don't know how to solve at the very beginning of the project by definition you're gaining knowledge and then you're formulating and organizing that, that knowledge into uh, a direction path that may have merit. Well, the way that you can test and validate if those components have merit is to figure out how to reduce them into uh, a prototype that you can test and validate. And one of the terms that's often used as much as disruptive innovation is MVP or minimal viable product. And so how do you take that, that solution concept and, and test it um, and consolidate it in a manner that you can test it to, uh, to see if it has a potential benefit. And so I think that that's something that I would encourage uh, anyone interested in this space to, to think about in whatever field or set of problems that, that you may be facing is, is, is how, you, how, can you, how can you learn from others, uh, understand their methodologies, apply that to your own methodology, and in the context of the challenges that you're facing, as you begin to organize information, uh, to figure out how you can uh, consolidate it and test it before you take too big of a step, too big of a risk um, as you're going towards your solution. And, and, and that, I think, is also an, an, an area that relates also very specifically back to this idea of adjacent possible, is ideally what you can do is, is you can organize this information in such a manner that you can take small steps that either provide validation or confirmation of not the right way that you can then very quickly and nimbly take an additional step that potentially is in the right direction that you can then leverage from. But don't try to take too big of a step. Break it into small parts. That's one of the key parts of of the process that we use. Yeah, excellent. That is all excellent advice. Yeah. Um, Just before we wrap up here, is there anything... uh, Anything that you wanted to share that I haven't asked about? Anything that you uh, wanted to bring to the table that I didn't cover in one of these questions? Also, I know it's getting cold in here. I turned the the heat off because it makes noise. No, I'm good. I'm good. Um, It's very comfortable. Uh, You know, um, I I think uh, a a lot of people... uh, uh, a lot of young people uh, contact me uh, through social media about, or, or, or other other contacts to, uh, you know, to ask about this area of design and how how they should become involved in it, or should they in fact pursue it or learn more about it, and uh, it, I, uh, I I you know I, I think it's I think problem solving is the most fascinating vocation that you can you can go into. But I think to, to the larger part of this conversation, I think that the most meaningful part um, about the opportunity to learn more about design and problem solving is, you know, this broader opportunity to apply it, to apply this process to solve any type of problem. And I think to your questions about, you know, you know generalist and, and specialization, uh, 
I think that we, 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 I guess we, we've maybe we've maybe um, uh, answered this to, to an extent, but I, I can't I can't understress uh, what I believe is the importance of 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 you know us all to to the fullest extent possible, you know, taking. Um, our own interests and inclinations and insights and trying to uh, learn as much as we can from others uh, that can help us. I'm not, I'm not articulating this in what I want to, but um, the, the idea of learning as much as we can from others to, uh, to gain insights into the things that we want to pursue and then, and then being willing to take risk to, to, to make things even better. And, and I think it, that is a, you know, that is a critical part of the process is, uh, again, as we've talked about earlier is that, is that creating new things involves risk. Um, but how can we apply a process that can mitigate that risk and uh, enable us to take these, these very important steps to solve these challenges that we face? And, uh, yeah, there's no shortage of challenges in front of us. No, there's not. Um, <clears throat> man, that's that's great, and and I think a uh, I think a good place to wrap things up. Um, so I just want to say thanks for being here. Um, yeah, our our last conversation at Urban Standard was uh, was great, and I felt like I had met like a kindred spirit, someone that uh, had a more um, evolved and wise sense of many of the same thoughts and inclinations that I had. So this has been, this has been a treat to be able to sit down and talk to you. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Um, we're going to link, I've been taking notes as we've been going through and also I've got your, uh, responses from the background sheet. Um, plenty of books, plenty of ideas, plenty of things that we're going to link in the show notes and make sure that everybody can find that. But, um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. That's it for today's dispatch. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider hopping over to the Apple Podcast Store and leaving us a review. It really does help us get in front of more people. Regardless, thanks so much for your support, and we'll talk to you soon.